Cauldron Cakes and Wine. My name is Polly. And I'm Taylor. And this is a podcast where we discuss all things Harry Potter. We are witches who are rereading the books and critically analyzing them. But mostly we eat pizza and geek out. This week we'll be discovering Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone chapters 10 through 13. Please be aware that this podcast is marked explicit, meaning we cover adult themes. We occasionally swear and sometimes talk about sensitive subjects. Be sure to check the description for content warnings. Also be warned, there are spoilers ahead. We discuss chapters 6 to 9, but also go rogue and talk about all seven books and extended universe things. So you've been warned. We are going to start off with a quick recap of the chapters we read. Chapter 10, Halloween. Harry receives the Nimbus 2000 and learns how to use it. Ron can't deal with Hermione showing him up, so he puts her down. Hurt Hermione retreats to the toilets to probably cry, but she is interrupted by a troll. Harry and Ron lock her in the room with it, but upon realizing their mistake, they rush to help her and incapacitate the troll. Hermione lies to McGonagall to protect Harry and Ron, and Harry and Ron finally decide that Hermione is a worthy friend. Chapter 11, Quidditch. Harry, Ron, and Hermione think Snape is trying to get past Fluffy. Harry plays his first Quidditch game. Ron and Hermione think Snape is jinxing Harry's broom. Hermione lights Snape's cloak on fire and bumps into Quirrell. As Harry is flying back down to the ground, he catches the game-winning snitch in his mouth. Hagrid lets slip the name Nicholas Flamel. In Chapter 12, the Mirror of Era said, Christmas comes and Harry and the Weasleys stay at Hogwarts. They use the time to research Nicholas Flamel. Harry receives an invisibility cloak from an unknown source and uses it to get into the restricted section at the library. He finds a room that contains a mirror. When he peers into it, he sees his parents and family. He tries to show Ron his discovery, but Ron doesn't see his family. He sees himself as head boy. Ron has a bad feeling about the mirror and begs Harry not to go looking for it again, but Harry doesn't listen, and when he visits the mirror again, he finds Dumbledore, presumably waiting for him. Dumbledore helps Harry understand that the mirror shows whoever peers into it their most desperate desires and warns Harry that some have been driven mad by the mirror and he will be moving it. Harry asks Dumbledore what he sees in the mirror and Dumbledore gives him a bullshit answer. Chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. Neville is bullied by Malfoy and Harry gives him a chocolate frog to cheer him up. The chocolate frog has Dumbledore's card in it. Harry realizes that Nicholas Flamel is mentioned on the card. Hermione finds him in one of her books, and they realize that he is the creator of the Philosopher's Stone. Hermione thinks the three-headed dog is guarding the stone. Okay, so I'm here with Brownie. Hi, everybody. And he just read the chapter on Quidditch. So what were your initial thoughts? Well, I can remember it brought back memories of when I first read the first Harry Potter book, and I was excited because... I love sports, and that was the first time we'd kind of been introduced to a sport in the wizarding world, so I thought it was pretty cool. Cool. So I just have a couple of questions for you um, related to Quidditch and what you just read. The first question is, would you pay to go to a Quidditch match? Yes, 100%. It would be something you'd never seen before. I think it would be pretty cool. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think even, like, not being a sports fan, I would probably still go. Like, I would want to see that because, I mean, they're flying and stuff, so it's pretty cool. Um, What sport do you think Quidditch is most like? Well, they gave, I think it was Harry that gave the analogy in the the book that it was similar to basketball. I think he was talking to Oliver Wood, but 
I would kind of say it's a little bit of a mix between that and maybe handball because you're throwing it across, you know. Um, but, yeah, I guess it's also very, very unique. You're riding on broomsticks and there's things <laughs> coming across that can kill you. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know, it's in its own league. But if I had to had to say, I'd say it's a bit of a hybrid between probably handball and maybe even basketball or something like that. Yeah, I find it hard to, like, because when you play like muggle version of Quidditch it's like European handball with like extra things added on so I I guess it's hard for me to get away from the idea of it being handball but I guess I also was thinking that it's sort of like because um oh what's that one cricket like cricket's really long and Quidditch could be like really long as well so I thought in that way it's kind of like cricket as well yeah I mean if you if you're looking at it from that perspective, well, I think they said in the book the first or the longest game went for three months. So, yeah, thankfully a game of cricket hasn't gone for three months. Five days is about as much as you'll get. But Yeah, I feel like Quidditch has a lot of rules as well, and so does cricket. So that's where I like my mind went. Um, my next question is, which position would you play and why? I think I'd be uh, one of the chasers, yeah. I think I'd like to be interactive with passing them like what's going on i don't think i'd have the patience to be a seeker (laughs) yeah i'd just get bored and i'd probably try and help out the chasers with with doing their job rather than get distracted um yeah so i think i'd be a chaser and then i'd get i'd probably get bored being a keeper as well because i wasn't involved in in the action so yeah i don't know i think i'd be a chaser yeah i think personally i would i think i'd be better at being a seeker because i'm not like very quick i don't have hand-eye coordination very much um but then i would also think that i would want to be a bludger just because they're the only ones who have a weapon um against the the bludgers you know like (laughs) like i want a bat so that i can keep those things away from myself a beater that's it yeah sorry (laughs) This one was a question from Taylor that I really liked. Um, it's, what would your team be called? Like, if you had a Quidditch team, what would you call it? I'm just having a think here. Um, right, so I had a bit of a think, and I don't know. This came into my head. I don't know what it's based from, and I don't know what context it has, but the Chesterfield Cherries is <laughs> <laughs> what I'm going for. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's just what popped into my head, so... Let's go with that. Okay. It's a little random, but uh, that works. And then how would you improve the game or is there anything you would change about it? I actually think I would award more points for the goal scoring of the quaffle. Just because I like the idea with the snitch being the be all and end all, but I, I would actually like to see a few more games be close so that the quaffle has a little bit more relevance, a little bit more importance within the within the game so that teams can be a little more rewarded for their efforts as opposed to the, the snitch just being the, the deciding factor a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends how long the game goes for, right? Like, if, if the game is, like, three months long, then the, the quaffle, like, I don't know, even if you find the snitch, like, there's a good chance it could be one team could still be way ahead, you know? But, yeah, that's a good point. But I think even as a spectator, like, I don't want to go watch a game that goes for an hour and a half. Well, depending on if it's, like, a fast-paced game like Quidditch, I don't really want to be watching it for longer than an hour and a half. But what about cricket? Yeah, but cricket's not a fast-paced game. It's a it's a slow 
event <laughs> over a, a long period of time. <laughs> but that's what you know you sign up for. Like cricket, and people aren't. There's no high action. There's no. <laughs> You know, generally speaking here, the test match goes for five days. It's very methodical. It's very tactical. It's slow moving. It's like a game of chess, really. Whereas Quidditch is very hot, like fast paced. And yeah, you couldn't, you just couldn't sustain that. And I think even in the book, it said that they had to call in substitutes because players had to sleep. You know, like you don't want that. You want your best team out there being able to perform. You don't want to be calling in Buddy from the common room to then come and sub you out because you're tired. You've been playing for two days. So I don't know. I just think there should be a cap on when the snitch can be released and it has to be released within a certain time frame. I'm pretty sure it's released at the beginning of the game and it's just the reason why it runs so long is because they can't find it. Like the seeker hasn't found it yet. Maybe the snitch can magically grow in size. Like after a certain time frame, so the seekers just get an eyeball on it, and then, and then only one of them has to, because then when the other one sees the other one going for it, then they're going to follow. Yeah, that's probably a good. Like, if it got bigger, then it would definitely be easier to find, and then the game wouldn't be quite as long. You're right, though, because it would be a little exhausting to sit there and watch something for that long. That's that high paced. <laughs> The boundaries seem pretty undefined. Like, I know in in one of the subsequent films where Harry goes in search of the snitch and he goes up really high to the point where there's Dementors and the the broomstick, like, he he freezes or something and then he ends up falling back down. Remember that? Yeah, that's in The Prisoner of Azkaban when Dementors are, like, guarding the school. I think, yeah. But, yeah, you're right. There doesn't really seem to be a lot of, like boundaries on where the Quidditch pitch begins and ends. <laughs> Which I think, like, maybe that contributes to how hard the snitch is to find. Like, if you're having to travel, like, potentially hundreds of metres in the above the stadium to find the snitch, then maybe dimensions could be put on, or, like, parameters on where the snitch can be. Might make the games a little more digestible for the audience and easier to finish. I don't know. But other than that, I, I think the whole concept is pretty cool. I like how it seems incredible that the goalkeepers can manoeuvre themselves quick enough to cover the the three goalposts. Must be must be something in the broomsticks because to me it seems like it would be a pretty easy choice to throw. I mean, the keeper's probably going to always start in the middle, so you probably wouldn't throw at the middle post you throw it straight at the keeper, so you're probably just always going to have to choose left or right, and the keeper's probably going to then have to adjust. Um, so I don't know. Maybe if the – I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe instead of being the three hoops, if there was a goal of some sort, that could be a little more fair to the keeper themselves so they don't have to cover as much ground. Um, but, yeah. I think it's a pretty cool concept. I'd love to see it and give it a crack. Um, yeah, I just think that maybe the refereeing can be a little more um, severe. Like the penalties can be a little bit better as well because even while the play was stopped, you had you had the bloke from Slytherin go and score four goals just while everyone was distracted. Like it, there should be things in place where if there's a, an event happening on the field, then the play stops. 
and it sounds like in Quidditch a lot of time. Well, definitely when Harry's concerned, there's a lot of you know things going on. It's not just a regular game, so you should be able to put <laughs> put the whistle and you know stop the play. So that can't happen. But then also like Madam Hooch, like Lee Jordan, I think he was commentating it. That was a big foul and. And she just, I think she just awarded a, a penalty, but there was no, like, discipline. There was no red card or yellow card or anything like that. Yeah. So I think that was one of the comments that I think it was Dean, who's like a West Ham supporter, he, he made, was that he should have got sent off. And I, I think if there's an instance like that, then definitely when Hogwarts is concerned and you're, you're for the school, then if you're, like, performing like that on the field, then you should be reprimanded on the field, but then off the field as well. So you're not encouraged to play like that and because Quidditch is a bit of a privilege in the school as well right like not everyone gets to play Quidditch so um you should be reprimanded and, and probably you know banned if you're if you're behaving like that and now had to really injure someone on the field just like you would in any other sport I guess the difference is though that they have beaters who like they hit bludgers and the, the sole purpose is to like injure the other players right like so there are things built into the game that are designed to injure each other yeah i get that but there's a i think there's a difference between what what the what is bound within the general constructs of the play and and beaters and bludgers but then what was what was demonstrated on that occasion so i think when there's someone who who's out to be vindictive or go after someone and and knock them off their broom or you know do something else like that, then, which is outside of what you would regularly see with beaters and bludgers, then that's where the penalty should apply. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's a one point where they talk about how there's a lot of different ways to get a foul in Quidditch. Like Harry's like thinking about it or something. Do you, do you remember that at all? No? Okay. I, I remember reading it that there was like a whole bunch of ways to get fouls in Quidditch, but then it, there never seems to be a point where there's like any any fouls ever happening when they're actually playing <laughs> it seems like a bit of a free-for-all doesn't it yeah but it also seems like i know coming from a background with australian football there are three umpires because the ground's so big it's not like a and even in basketball like there's so much happening you got two on a small court you got two two referees mm-hmm. so i don't know i don't think madam hooch can probably keep an eye on everything that's happening in fact it's it's impossible for her to because at some point her back's going to be turned to something so if she's in the middle of the action (laughs) she can't see everything so i think maybe having a couple of other sort of umpires to help her out would help but then again there aren't too many people on the field either so i don't know they are like flying around and stuff in hockey is there more than one um referee it's like one stand on, sit on one side and the other on the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's. Okay. Cool. Um, did you ever play Quidditch when you were working at camp? And if you did, what did you think of Muggle version of Quidditch? Yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> I was all for it. The kids love it. Especially like chasing around another human as a human snitch. <laughs> it's pretty sweet with like a sock hanging out of their back with a little golf ball at the end or whatever. Hilarious. If you ever get the chance to see it, Google it, or if you ever ch- get a chance to do it, I think Polly might even um, put a, a link to maybe like a template of like I don't know, she'll hook you up with how to play Quidditch if you've never played it before with some kids. <laughs> well, you can Google it actually because um, there's like 
I was about to say most universities, but it's it's actually probably not most universities, but there are a fair number of universities that actually have Quidditch teams like that you can join, <laughs> travel around and play other universities in Quidditch. So it's a it's a well-played game in the muggle world now. <laughs> at when at the other camp I used to work at, the first camp I worked at, we would always have the snitch dress in gold and yellow, like spandex. <laughs> so it was even more ridiculous. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, the, and that person you got to choose has got to be fast <laughs> as well, because they're going to have like a little army of children running after them. Well, I think you only pick a, like one or two people to be the seeker, but it still ends up that like they seem to get chased by everyone. Whenever at the first camp I worked at, whenever we played Quidditch, um, they would have the staff dress up like Harry Potter characters and then someone dress up like the like snitch. And I would always be Bellatrix Lestrange every time because of my like curly hair and it would make my hair like go crazy and dress in black and have like a stick as a wand. <laughs> There's also like a variation you can do with that too. Is you add in the Deathly Hallows as well. So yeah. then you then you put in didn't didn't we like create that for a school group one time? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think so. Yeah, I think we were just looking to try and engage the kids that just didn't want to kind of play and run around, but they needed something to do. <laughs> so we just gave them like three things that they had to run around and try and find. Yeah, in the area of the field, and they became like the Deathly Hallows. So we just grabbed like a big rock. And that was the resurrection stone, like a stick. And that was the older wand. And then, I don't know, through like some sort of garment. And that became the cloak. And then and then it was good. No, that, that actually, and then by retrieving all the hallows, it, you would win the game, kind of like the snitch. But the other team was looking as well, so you wouldn't, might not find all three. But that was kind of, that was kind of a nice twist on it, you know. It gave, gave those kids that just want to stand there and like dig up worms. Like stuff to do, and they like that. That was that. We played that with the one school group. We did the Quidditch tournament, right? And there was like each each house, and then it ended up being Gryffindor versus Slytherin, and it was this like super epic Gryffindor win. And the kids all had those like like Gryffindor and Slytherin had like epic pump up speeches like <laughs> when they went to play their final game, and it, we were like nerding out hardcore we were like this is just like the books oh my god versus okay polly needs to calm down a little bit now she's geeking out she's geeking out about the camp <laughs> i just remember it being very epic okay anyways okay so anyways that's all we have for now with brownie so thank you for joining us all right we'll see you next time Okay, so um, Taylor and I just listened to um, Brownie's interview. So I guess, Taylor, I just wanted to know what you thought about what Brownie had to say about Quidditch. I really liked what his answer to my question was. I thought it was very sweet. It was like the Chesterfield Cherries. Yeah. <laughs> I'd root for that team. Like, totally. <laughs> yeah, I feel like because I'm not into, like, sports, really, I felt like, I, like talking to somebody who likes sports about Quidditch made me think about Quidditch very differently, but like the actual workings of the game. And I hadn't really like thought about that, I guess. Yeah. I, I liked how he talked about the points and how he thought more points should be given to putting, I think he said the quaffle through the net. (laughs) 
In the pensieve, we dive into our real-life memories of reading Harry Potter. Starting the pensieve, um, we actually kind of struggled this episode to think of what we were going to talk about for the pensieve. Also, I just want to be real right now. Talking is hard, you guys. Well, we just we just recorded the the introduction and the segments and all that, and it is fucking difficult. It is hard. Yeah, that's not a fucking lie. Um, one of the other things that maybe you wouldn't realize when listening to the podcast is that like it takes us hours to get to the point where we even record this. <laughs> also, we're kind of drunk. Yeah, kind of drunk already. Like we have been sitting here for like what three hours. Yeah, we 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 talked about space for like an hour. We talked about some pretty fucked up shit. Like yeah, like <laughs> we're new to this. We're, we're still learning. Please please give us a chance. We love you. Love us. Um, also, this episode is the first episode we're doing with a new microphone. So if there's any weird audio shit, just ignore it and pretend we know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so um, we're getting started into the pensive, and as I was saying, we really, really struggled this week to think of like what we were going to talk about. So we've decided to talk about, um, I guess, the pressure of the house system and how we have kind of struggled at certain points to connect with our house. Obviously, like in the first episode when I talked about um, our sorting, I mentioned how I was a hat stall between Ravenclaw and Gryffindor. And um, it's like, I guess like Harry, sometimes I struggle. I'm like, am I actually a true Gryffindor? And then I have these moments where I'm like, yes, I am. But um, I have some mental health issues and sometimes I struggle with anxiety. And that makes me like feel like I can't be brave because of, and I actually Googled it one time. I, I was like, I'm a Gryffindor, but I can't handle stress. I have anxiety. Like, and J.K. Rowling put out a really... I, I wish I'd researched it before, but she put out a very lovely tweet. So if you Google anything along those lines, you will find something lovely that J.K. Rowling said. That was a lovely tweet. So go and Google some shit about that if you're a Gryffindor who also deals with anxiety and mental health issues because you will... It will brighten your day. <laughs> yeah, I kind of... I kind of dealt with the same thing. Um, I... I always kind of wanted to be a Ravenclaw because those were the traits that I was brought up to kind of value, like being smart and clever. And when I was sorted into Hufflepuff, it felt right. But when I read about what Hufflepuff was about and I talked about being hardworking, that's where I kind of questioned it because I also deal with mental health shit and it prevents me from being productive a lot of the time or it makes me productive on things that aren't necessarily valued as productive but you get stuck on it because that's what your brain needs you to do at that moment i feel like ravenclaw would have been the easy house for me to have been sorted into i'm i I, like i'm the kind of person where like i cannot even watch like a children's movie without critically thinking about it or analyzing it like i definitely have ravenclaw like characteristics where like i care a lot about academia and reading and the first thing i did when i moved back to toronto was i got a library card and (laughs) um but then i don't know when we were talking um taylor and i when we did our meeting to talk about this episode, we talked about bullying, which we'll talk about later. But I was, um, I told you a story about how when I was a kid, I was really bullied in elementary school at one point, And there was a point where the kids started bullying another girl. 
and it was this moment where I could have had an in with them because they were like kind of trying to like like rally me to like bully that girl and I was like no fuck you guys <laughs> you can't treat her that way and then I got bullied more and you said to me like that's a true Gryffindor's like response to that and I was like oh yeah like I definitely have oh, like that grave that, that Gryffindor like mentality <laughs> yeah I mean when when you break it down being sorted into the houses is a like a per- personality test like the like the the young test or whatever so it, it's not gonna pick up all your idiosyncrasies you know like but I think that there there is some truth to it but I also think that we all have a bit of each house in us and like there there's that potential. I think it was the cast of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. They were talking about this idea of aspirational sorting. Some people will try to sort themselves into a house that they want to be more like, as opposed to like what they think they are. So I think that's a really interesting concept, personally. So if you were to sort yourself into an aspirational house, would it be Ravenclaw? No, I think Ravenclaw is the one that I'm actually more inclined to. I think I, I wanted to be more Gryffindor, and I, I think... I think I am brave. I don't think, I think maybe also being like an anxious like person with mental health issues, maybe I felt like I needed those, like th- that bravery, why I wanted to like foster that in some ways. I don't know. Yeah. yeah if I were to aspirationally sort myself into a house, um, I'm kind of thinking like it would be Slytherin just because I've always wanted to be like that cutthroat badass who like nothing bothers them and oh, they're just so cool. (laughs) In our next segment, we are never really sure what we're going to get, but it will mostly be fun or boogers. Welcome to Birdie Bots Every Flavored Beans. Moving into Birdie Bots Every Flavored Beans. Um, the first thing I wanted to address was that in the last episode, we just didn't talk about Fluffy. <laughs> like, there's a three-headed dog, and we were like, mm, I don't know why we didn't talk about Fluffy. What are our feelings about Fluffy, just for the record? For the record, and I think one of the trio mentions it, mentions this at some point, I, I think one of them is like, doesn't that dog need to be walked? <laughs> um <laughs> What the fuck? Who keeps a giant three-headed dog in a small room? This is animal cruelty. That's my opinion on Fluffy. I'm going to have to agree with you there. <laughs> I think that it's irresponsible to keep such a pet. And for so many reasons. Also, in a school with students, you can't just be like, hey guys, don't go to that hallway. To a group of teenagers. They're, they're going to fucking go there. <laughs> yeah, it's... I, I'm constantly surprised by the amount of life or death situations that are kind of glossed over at this school hogwarts is the safest place though you know like (laughs) they keep telling you it it must be true (laughs) sorry magic protects you (laughs) so when quirrell like he runs into the hall and he runs up to dumbledore he's like dumbledore there's a troll and then he fucking faints like Fucking, I, I hate him. I think we're supposed to hate him. But it's like, wouldn't he faint when he saw the troll and not when he tells someone about it? It's just, he's the worst actor. And he's, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, it's, you're right. It's the worst case of overdramatic acting. I think 
on like going into my next point also like this is a similar situation with Hermione here where she lies to the teachers about why she was like why they had to fight the troll in the first place I'm like Hermione like why did you make such a weird lie like you are a bad actress you she literally is like I thought I was so good at magic that I could go and find the troll and fight it it's like why wouldn't you just say you were in the bathroom <laughs> and they came to find you yeah <laughs> Yeah, I feel like they didn't even really need to lie. That That's the funny thing. But it does, like, I mean, it, it hits something within me where it's like there are times where you lie when you have no reason to. Like, we were, we were just talking about lying about your age when there's no <laughs> fucking reason or saying you go to a college when you don't just because it's just the first thing that comes out of your mouth. I love it. It's so true. Yeah, that's that's actually very true. <laughs> so this is an embarrassing story. Okay. So when I first moved back to Toronto, my parents bought me um, this new laptop that I'm currently using. And I went onto the TTC. <laughs> I left my bag on a bus with my computer on it. And I like was like almost in tears and went to the like... TTC worker and there was an undercover TTC worker talking to the TTC worker so he was in plain clothing and I'm telling the TTC worker what happened and he was like must have been higher up in this like undercover TTC world because he had this badge and he went up with me and like talked to the TTC drivers sorry for those of you who aren't from Canada or don't know Toronto the TTC is the bus system or the subway system but so he went up and talked to the drivers and like showed them his badge and essentially ended up getting me my computer back. But (laughs) during this whole thing, he kept asking me where I went to school and I ended up lying to him and telling him that I was a York University student because we were like near York um, because I didn't want to admit that I was actually almost 30 and had lost my computer on the TTC. Yeah, but you're kind of in the in between right now, where you don't you're th- you're almost thirty, but you don't look like it at all. Yeah, you can definitely get away with it. Anyways, back to Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to put that whole embarrassing story in, no, but um, it's there. It's there. <laughs> Women always lie about their age. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then. During this interaction with the troll, um, there's a description of Harry, and it is, Harry did something that was both very brave and very stupid. And when I read this, I actually laughed out loud because I <laughs> felt that this was just Harry in a nutshell. Like, we could co- we could make a whole segment that was like, Harry was both very brave and very stupid, and just fill it every book with things that he did <laughs> that were just that. <laughs> Yes, I agree, and I very much relate to this brave and stupid paradox. I actually think bravery and stupidity kind of go together. A lot of times when you're brave, you are doing something that is stupid. You're putting A lot of times bravery is putting yourself in harm's way, um, which could be described as being stupid. <laughs> yeah, it really just depends on how you look at it. So the next thing I wanted to point out was just that Um, Ron saves Hermione with the spell that she was trying to teach him. So, and, and he makes fun of her for it. So, (laughs) okay. So we need to talk about this. 
I mean, uh, were we going to talk about it in a different segment? We are, yeah. <laughs> okay, never mind. We'll get to it. <laughs> Hold your anger. <laughs> yeah, um, we're going to talk about that. But I just wanted to point out the fact that he's really struggling to learn this spell. And she is like, this is how you do it. And <laughs> he's so rude to her. But then ultimately, she saves herself in the end. Yeah, you're right. It's It's kind of portrayed that harry and ron save her but she does save herself by trying to teach ron um in this troll situation (laughs) troll situation i feel like (laughs) we're talking about like an internet troll (laughs) like um the at the end jk rowling has this quote where she says that some things sort of bond friendship and i kind of like this idea the quote is there are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. And I feel like the trio learned a lot all around in this situation. I feel like what Hermione probably realized was that these two people were trustworthy because there were other people who knew she was in the bathroom and were like, fuck this, I need to get back to the common room and save myself from a potential troll. <laughs> um, and I think Ron and Harry probably... I mean, it's it's almost selfish gains that they got. Like, they realized that, like, they were shitty. But they also realized that Hermione could teach them things because ultimately they used what, like, Ron used what she taught him to save her. Like, I don't, maybe he's not that self-aware. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, are we going to go into right now the the labor that they constantly require from her or are we going to save that for Spew? Spew. <laughs> yeah. Um. So on the that idea of trauma bonds, um, I just want to like talk about how you and I have become friends and how it's you guys. It's a it's <laughs> it's kind of fucked up, but it's also kind of magical. The thing that does bind us is is not necessarily necessarily a a good thing or something that we like to talk about or like to think about but it has brought something pretty great and magical in our lives which is each other yeah i think that's like actually one of the reasons why i'm tied to the idea of um certain like things bonding friendships together in the way that the trio is bonded by this like scary memory of fighting a troll because i think some of my closest friendships are bonded together through things that I don't want to actually relive or I don't want to think about. Um, and I think that our friendship is amazing and wonderful, but it's like, it is, it is bonded by a person who was like not very wonderful and did some really horrible things to both of us. And um, we'll always like share realizing that at the, around a similar time, I think. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. It's the shared experience, I think, that, like, there was an immediate trust because, I mean, if we weren't clear enough, we were both abused by the same person. And I think a lot of women actually have this experience where they talk to someone, like an an ex-girlfriend of of someone they're dating or an ex and you immediately have this connection because finally someone understands what you're going through. And I think it's this, like, it's this exact situation. Like, I think you just said, like, they were bonded through the, this experience with the troll 
and Polly. That's exactly how we became friends <laughs> because we both had to deal with a fucking troll and we both got out of it. Yeah. So I guess the next thing that I wanted to talk about was that I find it really interesting to watch Hermione's relationship with authority change because we see her in these chapters. Um, she thinks that Snape couldn't do anything bad because he's a Hogwarts teacher. And then later on when we watch, um, she has this really triumphant moment with, um, with Trulani where she like quits her class and is like, fuck you. I think you're a fraud, which I think everyone has wanted to do at some point with a teacher. Um, and then also just how much she is so aware of why Umbridge is at the school and she just doesn't trust Umbridge from like the opening speech, like, Umbridge is here to surveillance the school for the ministry. And she's so much more aware of this like relationship with authority. Yeah, I, I agree. And something that I fell in love with, with Hermione very early was her critical mind. And on that note, I found it so strange that Rowling wrote Hermione as not good at chess. Did you notice that? Yeah, I think she just wanted to give Ron something he was good at. But, like, really, like, Hermione should be good at chess because she is logical and she is pragmatic right. and she reads a room and reads things and patterns well. So it's like... There could not be a more strategic character in the series, but somehow she's not good at chess. You're totally right. Like, Ron just needed to be good at something. <laughs> he couldn't be He couldn't be that dim-witted of a character. <laughs> But, like, I wish she would have gave him something like cross-stitching. Like, what if Ron was just, like, really good at cross-stitching? Or what if he was, like, just, like, what if he was an amazing painter? Like, I, where's the arts representation? All these fucking kids just want to be Quidditch jocks. <laughs> Literally. Where are the artists? Where are you? <laughs> I guess maybe um, Luna Lovegood, because later in the series, do you remember... Um, Oh, you probably, maybe you didn't get this far. Um, I think it's in one of the last books. They, yeah, it's the last book. They end up at Luna's house and she has painted a picture of her friends on the ceiling of her room. And there's this like link that says friendship, friendship, friendship. And it's like this like beautiful, <laughs> heartbreaking moment. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I love it. And why is there not more of that? I feel like the arts are so overlooked and like they, uh, do they they only talk about music when they're singing Hogwarts song. They they don't talk about like what's what like is are, is there different magical music? Like is there a different like music scene with, within the magic world? Are there different like pop artists that are like magic pop artists that can magically make their voices sound really good? So the only times I can think of ma um music in the magic world is there's a band, there's a band that goes to Hogwarts. <laughs> Um, during the, it's, uh, during the fourth book, when they have the Yule Ball, there's a band that shows up and the kids lose it. They're like, Wah! maybe my memory of the movie is like overpowering this a little bit, but they're like, act like they're rock stars who show up. Well, I really like that idea. And we got so off topic. What were we talking about? I don't know, but I think the next thing you were going to talk about is, um, Hagrid and his secrets. Ah, uh, Yes. Hagrid is the Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> like, he knows everything somehow. I think it might be because people underestimate him and think that he couldn't possibly do anything with 
this information, but also he's not the best at keeping them. So I don't know why people would give him this because, like, sure, Hager is not going to use this information for malicious reasons, but why let him know these things? Because aren't there spells that can change your memory? Why not, like, erase his memory? I'm sure there are spells that can do that. Yeah, because Hermione, um, in the last book, she erases herself from her parents' memory so that Voldemort can't use her parents or torture them to get information. Um, so there are memory charms. Um, also, I think in the second book, uh, Lockhart uses memory charms a lot. Anyways, I think Hagrid... I think the reason why he's so bad with secrets is because he has so many of them hidden away. Like, I don't think he means to or has malicious intent for giving the information out. I think he's just like, shit, like, I told you a thing I wasn't supposed to tell you because I have so many things I can't tell people and I don't know how to keep it straight in my head. Yeah, that's definitely how I see it. And I feel bad for him. Like, why should why should he carry all this? It's a It's a heavy burden. Like, even just to... <laughs> have the experience he had within Hogwarts and know what he knows and going through the wizarding war. And then now he's sort of mentoring and taking Harry under his wing. And he knows all these things that he feels like he can't tell him, which I mean, brings up the question, like why does he feel like he can't tell him the full truth about his parents? Like he keeps, he does keep a lot about his parents from him. Like even, when Harry goes to him and, like, he tells him about Snape and how he thinks Snape's being malicious, Hagrid's like, oh, no, there's no way. But maybe if Hagrid said, like, well, Snape was friends with your mom, so I don't think he could do that. I think yeah. maybe that would have totally changed Harry's perspective and been like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm off. Maybe maybe he's trying to help me. Or even the opposite. Um, if, you know, like, Snape is very mean to Harry, and if maybe anyone, Hagrid maybe, I don't know, just told him, like, your dad and Snape did not get along, maybe he would have understood some of this. Harry's a child and Snape is an adult and we've talked about this before that this is a he's abusing Harry and you, you know but maybe he would understand it's why he's totally unfair yeah but maybe he would at least understand a little bit like this is why this person doesn't like you <laughs> yeah which I think maybe uh once Lupin comes into the picture um I think Lupin kind of fills Harry in a little bit on this but whatever yeah Hagrid could have done it like day one and Harry would have understood a bit more. Yeah, I th I think Hagrid, I mean, he could have, but how Hagrid as a character is set up, he is trying to keep the peace. <laughs> he's trying to keep everything cool and fine, and he's just trying, like, he just wants people to get along. He Like, Hagrid never really initiates any violence or conflict that isn't necessary. He's the true neutral you wanted to look up what the inscription on the mirror meant. Yes. <laughs> so, G is not here to research what it means, so I guess we're going to have to do that on our own. <laughs> Let's do it. What's the actual inscription on the mirror? Um, 
I don't know why you're asking me. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm, I'm in like high school and there's a test. <laughs> We're so lost without you, G. Come back to us. <laughs> Dear God, I don't know if I can actually pronounce what it says. <laughs> so this is from harrypotter.fandom.com slash wiki, which I feel like when I Google stuff, often this comes up, so I'm going to assume it might be accurate but I don't actually know. Um, it says the writing engraved on the frame of the mirror is supposedly a foreign and probably dead language. But if you look closely, it says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire backwards with spaces rearranged, which is probably why you as a kid noticed that Eris said backwards is desire, which I didn't because I'm dumb. <laughs> You're not dumb, but yes, I did notice that as a child and thought everyone did. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's pretty cool that it's it's something that's hidden within the text, but I wish it was something that would be much easier to figure out because, I mean, moving the spaces kind of fucks it up. Also, it's a dead language, so technically no one should be able to know what it means. Just saying. Yeah, but, like, what dead language is just English backwards? <laughs> okay. Good job, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I mean, okay, it's clever because we're sitting here wondering what it is. Now to Google it, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was just that, like, when I was reading about how they were searching for Nicholas Flamel in the library, I was just like, man, like, why is there no, like, Google wizard spell? Like, just, like, Google Flamel. <laughs> like, <laughs> there absolutely should be. Like, there, there, there's ought to be. And, I mean, when I say there ought to be, I mean, in my ideal wizarding world, there ought to be, like, a bank of knowledge that you could use a spell to tap into, just like a search engine. Yeah. It's because a search engine is essentially magic. Like, if, if, if you know, you, like, a hundred years ago told someone that you could <laughs> type a word or a question and the answer would immediately appear, they would be, fuck no, you're a witch. <laughs> you're not wrong. Like, I... Yeah. I mean, if these books came out now, there would definitely... She would have been like, this is, like... <laughs> I don't even know. Latinist Google. <laughs> like... <laughs> Anyways, um, okay. Glad <laughs> um, And then the next thing involving like the library I, that I noticed was that Harry, when he's in the restricted section, he feels like the books are like whispering to him almost. And I was thinking about this like in relation to Harry in the later books where dark magic seems to impact him in certain ways that other people are always kind of like, mm, like, what are you talking about? And I wondered if this is because Harry is a horcrux. Um, so the, here's like the quote in the book is, the hairs on the back of Harry's neck prickled. Maybe he was imagining it, maybe not. But he thought a faint whispering was coming from the books as if they knew someone was there who shouldn't be. And so I kind of think maybe it's because Harry was a horcrux. I think maybe other kids who would go into the restricted section wouldn't have this experience. I think that's a very astute observation. I did not think of that at all. I just thought that maybe, and Polly just spilt on the couch. <laughs> I, every time. Um, yeah, I just thought that maybe that was just something that happened to like freak out, freak out the students so they don't go in there. <laughs> 
it could very well be that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking out of my ass. <laughs> I mean, that kind of is what this podcast is. So it's all, it's okay. You have a pass. So then the last thing we wanted to talk about was, um, Harry, after like one of the Quidditch masters, he follows Snape into the Forbidden Forest and he's meeting with Quirrell in the forest. And we were just like, I was confused about this scene, even knowing that like Quirrell is actually has Voldemort in the back of his head and that like Snape is actually good. And I just didn't understand what the fuck Snape was talking about and the way he was talking to Quirrell. I didn't get it. Um, I, I think that this whole interaction was simply Rowling trying to give us something to go off of. And in terms of, you know, Quirrell is involved in something and Snape is, has something to do with it, which I mean, had been in, like he'd been implemented into the story initially just as a shady character. So I, I, I agree that it doesn't really make sense. It didn't really need that because he, he made like a direct threat towards Quirrell. And that's where, you know, when you, when you read a direct threat towards a seemingly innocent person, you're immediately going to think that person is bad. So I think the thing that I found like weird is like, he's like asking Quirrell, have you found how to get past the beast of Hagrid's yet? And then Snape is like saying that Quirrell needs to decide where his loyalties lie. And just like, does this mean that Snape knew Quirrell had something to do that was like bad or nefarious? Or like, was he like a scout for Voldemort in this way? Why, or, or I mean, a scout for Dumbledore in some sort of way? Like, I just, I was confused about... Snape's involvement, why he was questioning Quirrell in the first place, and why they would continue to let Quirrell be a teacher there or to continue to, like, be around if there was this, like, fear of, like, what he was doing. I think that's actually a really common theme where there are teachers that are suspicious of other teachers, but they don't really do much to get them uh, fired. When they should, when, you know, you see something, you say something. I think you guys talked about this in the first episode. Yeah, and I mean, maybe, like, like we were talking about, like, these kinds of things about, like, you see something, you say something. Uh, particularly, that was in context with uh, sort of, like, neglect or abuse with or bullying or in some sort of ways. Um, and that was, like, something that came to light later, which is why I think, for people like me and G who are working with children or working in like environments with kids where when we see people not do that, we're like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> because we were always a part of an environment where it was like, you have a duty to tell, you have a duty to talk about these things. You have a duty to deal with these things. But this book was also written at a time where that wasn't an existing thing. <laughs> so and we also have to remember that this is a book and that if <laughs> Snape immediately, you know, told on Quirrell, there would not be much of a story. So I understand why, why they don't. I, I, I know. It's one of those moments where it's like, if this person did this, the entire book wouldn't exist. Or if this person did this, the whole movie would fall apart. Yeah. The whole series could really just be squashed within this first book if a few people did something differently. But I, that, that's reality. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most like horrible things, it's like, oh, if someone did this to stop this, 
this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. That's life, children. It's scary, but true. In Dumbledore's Blunders, we talk about how much we like Dumbledore and how creepy he can be sometimes. <laughs> Moving into Dumbledore's Blunders, uh, you wanted to start off with something very happy with Dumbledore. He wears a bonnet! <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, bonnet. Isn't not that's the thing? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So context to him wearing the bonnet. It's it's like during the Christmas celebration. But okay, one, it's a flower bonnet, which excellent. I love it. I love the imagery of it. Like what color flowers? What kind of flowers? But th- the main thing for me is bonnet implies that it's a cap that has a strap under the chin. <laughs> And that someone would choose to wear this. Like, Dumbledore must have been fucking wasted. <laughs> like, out of his mind. Like, they mentioned that Hagrid's drunk. So, like, Dumbledore must have been just hammered. Lit. Lit, as the kids say. <laughs> I love how you, like, seek out these very, like, innocent moments with Dumbledore. Because <laughs> I'm, like, when I'm reading it, I'm like, he did this. <laughs> And you're like, he's wearing a bonnet. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, uh, so the only other time we really see Dumbledore in these um, in these chapters is when we come to the mirror of Erised. And basically Harry's been in front of this mirror for like a while, um, like a few days. And Dumbledore shows up and he knows what Harry saw in it and he knows what Ron saw in it. And Harry's kind of like, well, how do you know? And Dumbledore quote says, um, I don't need a cloak to become invisible. And I just felt like that was like mad flex from Dumbledore. Like he's just like, I, I feel like it's like said very gently, but it's also this like moment where he's like, mm, boy, I am good at magic. <laughs> mad flex, but also mad creepy too, because you're constantly going to question after that. Is he here? Is, is is Dumbledore watching me right now? And I mean, you can just imply the things that you could be doing while imagining that Dumbledore might be there. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> Dumbledore knows everything. Um, he does, because he's God in these books. Um, yeah. The next thing that I wanted to point out was um, the quote... It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. And I think I just wanted to highlight it just because this is such an iconic Dumbledore quote. Um, like, people, like, get this shit, like, tattooed on them, right? Like, people really identify with this quote. And I don't know. I don't know if I identify that much with it. Do you? I identify it, I think, because I fear to not live. Like, that is one of my greatest fears is to not live. But I don't think I identify with the, it doesn't do to dream. I think to dream is to live. Mm-hmm. And I think it it goes in part with living. I think being a creative person like myself, like I, like you said, like to dream is to live. Like I... I'm all, I feel like I'm always just trying to like be creative and think and dream and, and that fuels where I'm going. But I, I guess in the context of the way that he's saying it is like, don't dwell on things that can't possibly happen. Right? Like Harry is dreaming about something in this moment that can't happen. Right? And that's a very important distinction to make. I, I, I think you're right that he is focusing on 
essentially fantasies. But I think if you can't have something, why not fantasize about it? Like, I don't have the experience of my parents being dead, but if they were and I never met them, oh boy, would I ever dream about and fantasize knowing them. In some ways, that could be a very powerful thing to dream about. I can see how it could be all-consuming, and then you, in this aspect where you're seeing the thing that you want the most, you're, like, withering away in front of it and watching it. Um, So I get it. It's an interesting quote at the end of the day. It's really interesting, and I I do like it. I I, I think that it's, if, if people find something from it, then that's great. Yeah, and then, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about with Dumbledore is just, so Harry asks him, um, what he sees in the in the mirror, and he makes this lie about socks. And I always like I I now looking back on the series, I wonder if he sees his sister and he sees these, or or something more complicated. He he's clearly lying, and Harry has a moment where he is like, "Well, that was a very personal thing to ask," but Dumbledore also saw something very personal from Harry and gives him very little back. And we were kind of talking about this before that maybe he didn't have to tell Harry exactly what he saw, but maybe he could have given him an age appropriate answer that could have helped him understand the complicated things he was seeing. Like I see my family too, but not giving like all of these details about his family and why he would see them, but just some sort of like, that's what I see as well. I see a part of my family that I can't have either, you know? So I think that if if Rowling or Rowling, however you say it, <laughs> wrote into Dumbledore's character that he did give away parts of his quote-unquote personal life, I think that it would personify him much more to the students, and I think they would trust him more. And I think she wouldn't need to add these little things like him wearing a bonnet or saying silly words because I feel like that's how she tries to personify him and tries to remind us, oh, yeah, he's just a goofy guy. <laughs> he's a crazy guy. But he's a person, and we we never really get a taste of that, ever, at least in my experience. So I went to school for recreation therapy, so we had to practice interviewing a potential participant in a sort of like a therapeutic way. So we had to practice talking in a therapeutic way to people. And one of the things we talked about in class is disclosing information from yourself. Um, And part of that is that when you disclose parts of yourself or like things that you struggle with as well to a participant, it can be this really... um, bonding moment as long as you do it in a way that that person is not then worried about you right because they're the ones seeking help from you so you have to do it in a way that they're not going to turn around and be like concerned about you you've not put burden on them by telling them this it's more of like a I struggle with something similar here's some like a piece of information that can be very powerful for building that bond Um, and I find when I work with young people Oftentimes when they disclose certain things to me, this goes to even like some of my staff at camp, they've disclosed certain mental health issues to me at times. And I will tell them like, I have a mental health issue as well. I've struggled with this in school or something similar, but I I don't go into detail and I don't like make them like make it feel like I'm leaning on them. I just say, I've dealt with something similar. I know what that's like. And then that 
allows them to like open a door to feel more comfortable to share things. And I think that Dumbledore's character, he's so cold in some ways to Harry and he could have done a better job at disclosing certain things or uh, as opening himself up as a person to Harry. Um, But I also don't think that that was necessarily the way adult teacher figures interacted with children as much back in the time period when this was written. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because I did have teachers like Dumbledore who would give us kind of flashes of personality and kind of show us like, or like talk to us about the music that they were into, but would, you know, be very close off about like their relationships and personal life or where they came from. But then I also had uh, specifically one teacher comes to mind where she like outlined to us like every marriage she had. Um, actually, no, that's wrong. Not every marriage, every marriage proposal she had <laughs> and how she turned them each down and why and how that has benefited her and that made her the person she was. And I think that she kind of told us her stories because she thought that it would benefit us and help us and see that like there's no one way to live you know you just because someone wants to marry you doesn't mean you should (laughs) and she kind of I mean that was kind of a flex on her part (laughs) but I but I love it yeah and there's a very fine line right like there's a very fine line between being like I'm going to share parts of myself with you so that you can learn from this and feel like I'm another like adult who is a human being and has shared experiences that you're experiencing right now. There's a fine line between that and sharing too much. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes adults put too much on children and then that becomes a whole other issue. But the whole point is that Dumbledore could have done a little better job at being a human to Harry (laughs) and not this like godlike figure who... Harry never knows what the truth is. (laughs) We might not be Molly Weasley screaming at Ron for stealing his father's car, but we could give her a run for her money in our next segment called Howler. Moving into Howler, um, the first thing I really recognized was um, I didn't know if I was angry or sad about how Ron treated Hermione um, over the Wingardium Leviosa moment. Um, It just made me really sad because he didn't even care that she was upset about it. And it made me really angry, but it also just, I felt really, really sad for her because that was a horrible moment where she was genuinely trying to teach him something that she knew how to do. And she might've been bossy about it, but I don't know. It's just shitty. It was just shitty of him. I mean, I even hate that word bossy because I think, I think at worst she was being condescending, but she was still genuinely trying to help him. And, like, <sighs> I mean, I I resonate so much with this moment, with her hurt, with, with that overhearing someone saying something and feeling like, even though you weren't even supposed to hear it, that, that kind of makes it worse. And it's just, it's so awful. And I agree with you. Like, it makes me both mad and sad. It makes me want to punch Ron. It just, ugh. But also, it's it's not that, it's not, like, I didn't read it as malicious. I read it as a kid saying something and not recognizing the consequences of what you say. Yeah, and at the end of the day, they're 11-year-olds. And a lot of 11-year-olds don't understand the consequences of what they're saying. So... 
in some ways I give Ron a little bit of a pass in that, but I just felt like once he saw that he had upset her, like at the end of the day, this was a pride moment for Ron, right? Like Ron was upset because she'd hurt his pride in some kind of a way. And Ron's allowed to feel that. He's, you know, like, but it, where, where, it, where I draw the line is that he says mean things about her because of that. And he hurts her and he sees that she's hurt and doesn't feel bad about it. And that's where I feel sad and angry. Because <laughs> he's allowed to feel how he feels. She is being a little bit condescending and he's allowed to feel that. <laughs> so the next thing that really made me angry was um, we skip forward a bit to when the trio become friends and everything is happy now. Um, and it just made me really angry that the boys are kind of like, Hermione's nicer now that she doesn't care as much about the rules and she does their homework for them. And that is super fucked up to me. Like they can only be friends with her because she's intelligent and doing things for them and lets them get away with things and doesn't hold them accountable. That made me really angry. Yeah. It also just, yeah, pissed me off so much. She, she changes herself. She alters herself and who she is. She she quiets down. She she stops being as assertive as she normally is because she has now heard that by being assertive doesn't make her friends. And people are intimidated by that. By her. <laughs> yeah, and we kind of we've talked about this multiple times where we wonder here's the thing is like Growing up as a girl, I feel like I understand this and I resonate with it. So I wonder, did J.K. Rowling write this as like, is it intentional? Is she trying to like shine light on this? Or is it just perpetuating an already existing dynamic? I, and I can't, I go back and forth constantly on what I think it is. Same. Like, I think it's probably a bit of column A and a bit of column B. Um I do think, though, that if it was intentional, it wouldn't be so easy to miss. Because until this time reading it and critically, critically analyzing it, did I realize this? Did I really notice this moment and how she had to change herself to become friends with the boys? I think one of the things that is probably a giveaway that it wasn't as intentional as we're kind of giving it credit for at times is that maybe Hermione's lacking agency within these moments. We're viewing everything from Harry's perspective and we're viewing her in this very sort of boxed in way. We're not actually viewing how any of this is impacting her or her agency in it and what she's choosing to abide by and what she's choosing to rebel against. We're not actually seeing that on a personal level for her. And that is, I think, what really bothers me. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I just did a very dramatic gesture because that's how I feel. (laughs) Um, So there's a moment and it's like it's so offhand. She did not need to add this, but in it and it's so confusing and it makes me both happy and sad. It makes me sad because... Fred and George are throwing snowballs specifically at Quirrell's turban. And I mean, maybe she was shining a light on just racism 
and xenophobia, but I really doubt it. I think that she was like, this is what kids would do, which, you know, maybe they would, but you're setting a terrible example because, like I said in the last episode, I looked up to them as kids. Like, I thought they were chill, but now reading it, I'm, no, not, not so much, not so much, but it's also, ugh, this is how it, like, it confuses me so much because... It's kind of funny because they are throwing snowballs at Voldemort. <laughs> so I hate, I hate this conundrum that she has put me in. And overall, I just wish she didn't do it. Yeah, it's like, God damn it, why did you do this? Cause, because it's Voldemort, that makes it funny. But it's not a funny situation. No. <laughs> so screw you, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> the whole podcast should be yeah. <laughs> no, the whole podcast is being renamed to screw you jk rowling and what the fuck is snape doing <laughs> <laughs> so in these chapters we see draco being a dick again which is a common theme and we're gonna we talk about it all the time but i i feel like i had this very first moment where i really really realized that draco is bullying harry and throughout the series, it gets played off that Draco and Harry have a rivalry. And this is not what this is. This is bullying. Um, and I was kind of talking about this with Taylor when we had our meeting about this episode. And I was saying that, like, working with, like, so having been a kid and being, having been bullied and then going and working with children and seeing bullying on the outside... I have a lot of opinions about it. And I feel like, so when, when we were younger, there was a shift in mentality about bullying. And I'm looking at it from the perspective of when I was a kid. I only know, I don't know what the adults were thinking and saying about this, but I know what was said to me. And it basically was that there was, there's bullying in schools and we have a zero tolerance for it now because it didn't exist in the past. And so we had all of these campaigns at my school about anti-bullying and all of this shit. And then as I grew up and I've started to work with kids, I realized that now there's almost like an over-labeling of bullying. Um, and I feel like any situation that's slightly mean gets labeled as bullying. And I, I, as people who work with children, we're very hesitant to sometimes label something as bullying because we know the connotations of what saying that will mean. And so to me, I have in my head created like, I'm like, th these three things have to exist for bullying to exist. And it's that... It's harassment. It's a like targeted harassment at someone. So it's like specific to that person. It's continuous over time. It's not just a one-time offense. And there is a power dynamic that is existing that other person can't win in this situation. They're, they have some sort of social capital over the other child. And I think that if these three things don't exist, it's a situation that's bad and needs to be dealt with and you need to have discipline. Um, but it's not bullying, especially if it's not a continuous thing. If it's a one-time offense, this is not bullying. That's a kid being mean. If it is continuous over time, that is bullying. And that's what this is with Harry. It's, it's Draco has serious social capital over Harry. He, I mean, I guess in some ways Harry is like the chosen one and he's whatever, but Draco comes from a very affluent family and has this whole like blood purity bullshit on his side. Yeah. Draco's Draco's very privileged. Draco um, is targeting him for things that are very specific to him. 
And it's continuous. It happens over the entire series. And it makes me very angry that no one is addressing this as bullying. I mean, I I totally agree that what he's doing is bullying. And that's what makes me so frustrated when I see people kind of either romanticizing Draco as a character or glorifying him. And I mean, okay, if you connect with Draco, that's, I mean, maybe you do. It doesn't make you a bad person, but there should be, I feel like there should be no like light shining upon him as him as this tragic character. He's a bully. He's an asshole. He's like, he's a privileged fuck. Like, let's just say it. Like he's he's a bigot. Yeah, that's that's not saying that Draco didn't in the end have like an extreme moral dilemma and that ultimately what happens to him is fucked up and he was a part of something bigger that he truly did not understand. That's fair. But Draco's not a nice person. He's not a nice kid. And if you're sitting there writing fan fiction about how wonderful Draco is, I'm sorry, but you're not reading this closely enough <laughs> draco actively inflicts pain upon people that, that that's all i need to say like if, if you have an excuse for that like i'd love to hear it <laughs> twitter us <laughs> i mean like i feel like draco <laughs> draco apologists and like snape apologists are probably in the same category <laughs> I'd I'd be more inclined to be a Snape apologist. And that's a lot to say because Snape's an adult and he, he should know more about what he's doing. I don't I don't even want to be on that team. I don't even know why I said that. But I would rather be on that team than on a Malfoy team. That's valid. Um, people are gonna hate us. <laughs> um Yeah. And then okay, so the last thing that I thought about it. It didn't make me angry. This was another one of those things that made me sad. This is becoming like the angry slash sad segment. <laughs> um, but basically, it's um, Neville gets cursed by Malfoy, and then he's like in the Gryffindor common room talking to the trio, and he's like talking about how he feels like he's not brave enough to be in Gryffindor, and it made me really sad for him. Um, and it just made me realize how much pressure these kids have on them, especially surrounding the house system, because that's a lot to put on an 11 year old, like, especially an 11 year old, like Neville, who is being bullied by this other kid who's like cursing him. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about in the Pensieve is, you know, we all already have these doubts about ourselves and this house system just kind of contributes to that for these kids. Like it gives these kids a reason to say you're not good enough because you don't fit into the house that you're in. And it's so sad and so frustrating to just read. That's all I have to say. I mean, you, you see it with Harry as well because the hat told him like you could be great in Slytherin and Harry spends the majority of his time at Hogwarts being like, am I Slytherin or am I a Gryffindor, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Harry, you're just a kid. Like, that's all I just want to say to these children is you're just kids. Like, you, you're you just you and it's fine. But, like, this stupid fucking systemic <laughs> bullshit. Like, it makes, me, it makes me not like the wizarding world. 
look, Taylor, there's a lot of shit that makes me not like the Wizarding World. Yeah. I mean, okay, like, I want my Hogwarts acceptance letter, like, all of you, but, you know, like, the justice system in the Wizarding World is kind of fucked up. The, 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 the fascism in the Wizarding World is kind of fucked up. Their education system is kind of fucked up. Uh, yeah, it's kind of fucked. <laughs> it's almost as, a, as if it's mirroring our world, possibly. Oh my god, I never realized it. <laughs> almost as if our world is so depressing that we need to escape to another depressing world to deal with it. Maybe? Burn this shit down. (laughs) And remember all, we remember things that we forgot. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about in remember all was just um, when, when McGonagall is awarding points to like Harry and Ron for beating the troll in the movie she says for sheer dumb luck and I thought that was a book quote because I don't know why but the movie quote overran my memory and um this seems to be a theme that the movies kind of mix together with the books for me um probably the early ones particularly uh so yeah I just thought that was a fucking book quote (laughs) I was a little disappointed that it wasn't I actually did not remember why Ron and Harry became friends with Hermione. From the way I remembered it, I thought that they were just friends off the bat and they just kind of didn't really warm up to her. But reading it now, it's explicitly stated that now they're friends after she helps them. And I just... I don't know how I didn't realize that before. And it like it's not a slow burn. It's it's definitely them alienating her and then suddenly saying, Oh wait, you have something to offer us? Okay, you're our friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, um the next thing I remembered was or forgot, I guess, was just how big the Hogwarts library is. So The quote is, um, and then, of course, there was the sheer size of the library. Tens of thousands of books, thousands of shelves, hundreds of narrow rows. That is a huge high school library. (laughs) It's ridiculous, but also, I would love that. It's no wonder Hermione has read so many books. (laughs) So you wanted to talk about Neville during Harry uh, getting injured during, or potentially injured during the Quidditch match. So I forgot, like, the whole, like, all the intricacies within the Quidditch match scene. Um, Neville cries when he sees Harry in danger, and I just thought that was so sweet. And I I, I didn't really... Maybe I did, like, pick it up, but I maybe I contributed to Neville being, like, weak, which crying is often associated with, which I have associated crying with in the past. And it's only, like, actually very recently that I've seen it in more of a a strength emotionally. Like, if you have the emotional capacity to cry, that's strength. And, and that vulnerability in itself is a strength. And it's... I, I mean... I've always loved Neville, but I love him even more just reading that. I think when you have the capacity to have empathy for another person where you actually reach the point of crying, that is a 
like admirable quality in a person, right? Like Neville is so worried about someone who he's friends with that he cries because he sees him in danger. And that is so admirable. And it's even more admirable and almost kind of sad because in the chapter right before, Harry snubs Neville. And I mean, it's not overt, but he it's written in the text that Harry is relieved when Neville isn't his partner in, in the class. I can't remember which class, but Harry... And I remember noting that and being like, Harry, you know what it's like to be an outcast. Like, why, why do you feel this way? But then immediately going, oh, wait, if you've been outcast your whole life, you want to be accepted. I, I feel like Harry later on in the books has that moment with Luna where there's parts where he's very embarrassed to be seen with her. And then later he's like, she's my friend and like defends her in front of other people and is like, tells her like, we're friends. And that's like a huge personal like development for Harry, I feel like. And that's really beautiful to see him like grow as a character. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm glad that he grows because just knowing that Neville cries when he sees Harry in danger, but also like, I think it was like a few days before Harry was relieved to not be partnered with Neville. It was just like, oh, I hate it. It kills me. But it's also very real to the dynamics of friendship, whether you're a, a, a child or not. I do think that Harry does redeem himself because he does like give Neville a pep talk later. So it's like Harry... It's like embarrassed by Neville, and then he's kind of like, no, I'm going to give you this pep talk. <laughs> but only in private, of course. Like, you can't be seen with him because Neville's uncool. Yeah, true. <laughs> also, something else that I forgot was that Hermione, she, like, it's not that I forgot that she lit Snape on fire, but I forgot the whole sequence of how she knocks Quirrell down. So she's knocking Voldemort on his face or on his ass, I guess, because I think it said that Quirrell goes, yeah, and 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 it, and, it, and it says that um, she doesn't care that she, she that she knocks him over and doesn't care, and so she's knocking Voldemort on his ass, I guess, because she knocks Quirrell forward. <laughs> And then even though she doesn't realize that that's Voldemort, it's also she's knocking a teacher down and does not care in this moment. She's like, I need to protect my fucking friend. (laughs) And then she lights another teacher on fire. It's (laughs) so badass. And I mean, this moment could also be an expecto patronum for me because it just makes me so happy. So happy. Like, I think in all the chapters that we read for, for this podcast episode that was my favorite moment i didn't fully recognize that until you pointed it out and now that you did i'm like yeah that's fucking bad (laughs) yeah (laughs) like could you imagine doing that as a as a what is it 11 years old like lighting a teacher on fire because you suspected that they were doing something bad that takes guts yeah it's one of these moments where you're like that's why hermione is in gryffindor not ravenclaw yeah. <laughs> That's why the book should be from her perspective. <laughs> Legit. <laughs> um, so the next thing, we skip, we skip ahead to Christmas, and I realized all the professors seem to be there at Christmas, and I was just confused about the Hogwarts professors' lives, and, like, do they have family at home? Do they 
do they actually just give up that much of their life to be there? Why are, are none of them married? Do they, none of them have kids? Um, where do they go during the summer? I just, I wrote down that I felt like this was a moment where I realized that my teachers were actual people and I didn't understand their lives. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, when you're like that, you're a kid and you're like, wait, you're a person. What do you do on your free time? <laughs> that was this moment for me. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was very much as a kid, like, you exist when you're not here? <laughs> like, you're a person? I I mean, I just, I assumed that the teachers all dated each other. <laughs> because they're around each other so much that, but like, it, that, that it wouldn't be talked about. That it would be like on the hush-hush, just... Because, I mean, I remember in high school, many teachers dated each other and were married to each other, but they wouldn't use this, like, they wouldn't use their married name. They would use their maiden name just so people wouldn't know that they were married. And they wouldn't even, like, talk at school. Like, if they talked, it was, like, very, like, low-key, like, in, like, hushed tones. Like, let's not, like, give off that we are anything other than colleagues, which is, like, the very professional route, and I think that Hogwarts would probably take that. I mean, I'd I'd hope they would. They're all about secrecy. <laughs> so, the first camp that I worked at, they had a policy that if you were dating another staff member, if the camp directors found out about it, you were being too obvious. And then the second camp that I still continue to work at um, had a much looser policy about it. They did not care if the kids really found out unless it was like they're sharing gossip and then that's a point where it's crossed the line um and sometimes I felt like it I feel like it's kind of weird like we would do skits and stuff and they'd put couples together in like a character role like the like two characters who are like a couple are they're the camp couple that play that character in front of the camp and then it's kind of funny because the staff know and some of the older kids know um Brownie and I dating at camp. It took some kids like three summers, like literally till last summer to figure out that we were dating. <laughs> and that's because we were probably more discreet than other people. But I've always felt that it lies somewhere in the middle between the two camps that I've been at. So I don't think that it should be a complete secret the way the other camp treated it. I think that there's something very powerful for as long as it's a healthy relationship. There's something very powerful for young people to see people who are not their parents in a healthy relationship who they look up to. Um, As long as they're not finding out intimate details of your relationship and as long as you're not putting any emotional baggage onto them, I think it can be a, I think it'd be a pretty good thing. (laughs) Like, um, cause sometimes the only real adults you see in a relationship are your parents and that's not always the most healthy thing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that, if teachers were dating within Hogwarts, I don't see how it could hurt the students at all. And like you said, you, as a kid, you need more role models for healthy relationships than like just your parents, if your parents are in a healthy relationship. <laughs> and if your parents aren't in a healthy relationship, then you need to see that to believe that it's possible. I think in the summers, they probably just go on vacation or like just to dedicate themselves to their hobbies. I'd imagine Hogwarts has good pay that they could 
And I mean, what are they using their money on during the school year? I'd assume it's like room and board is included. I don't think they'd have to like pay rent or pay for food. I think that they just make money that they could blow. Maybe they go to like like wizarding casinos <laughs> and just like blow all their money. I can kind of see like McGonagall doing that just because like I see her having something that she just lets go and just like doesn't give a shit. Okay, McGonagall is totally betting on like like the professional Quidditch or the McGonagall is betting on the Quidditch teams, like the yeah. professional Quidditch teams, yeah. like for sure. Um I like to imagine so stewardesses, um, they often live they have like apartments that are called like crash pads. And I kind of like to imagine that in the summer all of the Hogwarts professors live in like a crash pad together. <laughs> Or they go on vacation together, like you were saying. That's what I like to imagine. See, I didn't imagine that they did it together. I imagine that they all went their separate ways because they were sick of each other. <laughs> yeah, I just assume they're all, like, besties. Like, Flitwick and, like, Sprout and McGonagall are like, yeah, we're hanging out, going to Mexico. <laughs> I could see that. I could see some of them, like, having their certain cliques. But then... Like, some of them are, I like, I can imagine McGonagall just going and doing her own thing. It's, like, she, I don't know who she reminds me of, but, like, something about her just makes me feel like I know her. I know her, and I know what she would do. And I, and I feel like she would go and just do whatever the fuck she wanted, and she would gamble, and she would, I don't know, go to a strip club. I don't know. She just get loose. I feel like I know McGonagall because I'm becoming her. I feel like when I was younger, I was Hermione, and now I'm aging into McGonagall. <laughs> That's why I know her. Um, anyways, do you have anything else to say on this subject? Okay. So the last thing in Remember All that I wanted to talk about was just Harry has a moment where he feels that Snape can read minds, and it's because he can. Harry is like this is a moment where he's just so intuitive because later in the books we find out that Snape can do occlumency and he's trying to teach Harry occlumency and I just love this moment because it's so webbed into the rest of the series and I feel like if JK Rowling hadn't fully planned everything out she did a very good job of going back and picking these moments and then webbing them into like later on or they were fully planned out. I don't know which one it is, but she did a good job either way. Spew! It's fun to say when it's abbreviated, but sometimes gets a little wordy when we start to unpack it. This is the segment where we talk about any social issues that emerge when we're rereading the text. Okay, so we are moving into spew. And this what is, does that stand for, Molly? Uh, remember. Uh, the spew stands for the, I don't know. I cannot remember. It's wordy as fuck. Um, but so this is going to be a little bit of a feminist rant. I feel like, um, do you want to take it away with our first point, Taylor? <laughs> oh, are we doing a feminist rant? Is that what we're doing right now? All right. I'm on board. <clears throat> Hermione. <laughs> Who knew that I was going to talk about Hermione? Okay, so Hermione is called bossy for like, and I and I don't think this is the first time she was called bossy. 
I mean, she's definitely been implied to be bossy, but this time she is called bossy. I mean, I don't even have the words to explain how much this this offends me. Yeah, I, you know what, it's interesting because, like, so last week I was talking to someone at work and they were talking about a kid and they were talking about a kid from, like, a different location when they'd gone on, like, supply to another daycare and they were, like, saying how this kid was, she was bossy and how the staff asked the dad, oh, are you raising your your little girl is a boy. And he was like smiling and kind of nodding, but like jokingly. And I felt so uncomfortable about this because I was like, what? So she's bossy because you're raising her as a boy. Like that is like fucking weird. People say weird things about toddlers. It's weird. They thought that he was raising her as a boy because he was teaching her agency. (laughs) That that's exactly it. And that's why I hate the term bossy. Because it's a way to d- demean women who who believe in their... Sorry. Sorry, I'm gripping the mic so hard because I'm, it's pissing me off so much. <laughs> Bossy is just a way to tell women that they have agency and it's not okay. That's little Like, oh, I'm sorry I'm assertive and I have an issue. Yeah, I mean, we both brought up the fact, this, like, bossy quote and... um. I think it's, like, directly quoted that it's she's a bossy know-it-all. And it's just, like, fucking stupid because as we will talk about and have talked about, it's just Hermione is the most knowledgeable person in the room. Of course she's a know-it-all. She does know a lot more than all of the people around her. And you should be learning from her, not fucking demeaning her for her fucking knowledge. Yeah. Um, I have never heard a male be described as bossy i just want to say that there's no word for it because for men it is empowered it is strong it is knowing your shit i really struggled as a leader as a young leader um because i didn't live up to a lot of the sort of expectations of a female leader, um, especially working with children. I'm, I I don't want to say I'm not nurturing because I am nurturing and I know that I am, but I'm not nurturing in a very sort of classical feminine way. I'm not very soft. I have this like quirky humor to myself and I really struggle because I didn't fit into this gender binary of like the men are assertive and loud and they can command the room and I I wasn't soft and nurturing and hugging the children all of the time and and taking care of their like emotional needs all the time. I was this like weird, quirky, fun like it was the crazy aunt who came in and played with the kids and had fun and I didn't know how to be that way. Um, and yeah, I just felt like I didn't fit and it, it took a long time to just be like, "Fuck it, I don't care that I don't fit." For one, I would like you to stop referring to yourself as quirky. <laughs> I hate that word. It it just falls into like that manic pixie dream girl kind of like, you're not quirky. You're you. It's your humor. (laughs) It's not weird. I'm so weird. And I'm like one of the boys. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not like the other girls. (laughs) You're right. It's, it's, this is it. I'm almost 30 and I'm still struggling to identify it and, speak about it because it's just been so insidious in my life that's what the reality is (laughs) all right feminist rant part two
Okay. Um, so the, the first time we really see Hermione have value through Harry's perspective is when she lies. When she gives up her values for Harry, for his good. And I think that's really fucked up. But I think it's also a very common situation that women find themselves in to get ahead, to make friends, to be one of the boys. <laughs> you have to sacrifice part of yourself. Yeah, I feel like I identify so much with that. I remember, so I was actually talking to Brownie about this at one point. I was like, I was saying how I struggled so much when I was younger because I wanted to be, like, I hung out with a lot of guy friends and I was, I wanted to be like one of them and I suppressed a lot of my anxieties and a lot of my fears and I wouldn't express a lot of how I was feeling. So I would go out and I would just stay so quiet just to be one of them and be cool with them. And then now that I'm older and I don't do that, I feel like I'm crazy. (laughs) Like, like most of the men around me think I'm crazy. (laughs) And I'm just like, where is this in between where men can respect me for my emotions and my feelings and I don't have to suppress it. Like, I don't... Mm. Yeah, it really sucks when you're just being yourself, but you feel like the men around you see you as a feminist know-it-all. And, like, that's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I bite my tongue on, on the daily, and I'm not even... I mean, I'm around men daily, but not the men that do that. That... It's it's always it's always this this kind of look in silence and pause. It's always this. Oh, you really said that, <laughs> and now I need to defend myself because if I don't, I'm not a good guy. Here's the thing: you don't need to defend yourself to be a good guy. You just need to listen. That that's that's the whole fucking point. Also, I I said that you have to change yourself to fit in. I think it's more you have to you feel like you have to change yourself. You don't have to change yourself to fit in. I think you can be yourself and fit in, but we we end up feeling like we have to. I think that this is why as I've gotten older, I have learned to value my female and non-binary friends a lot more than a lot of my male friends because I feel as though I can express myself and just be myself and not have to suppress parts of myself and not worry about like I just most of my really close friends now I just I feel like they're like part of my family and I've never felt that way about any of like the guys I was friends with when I was younger I felt like I was trying to impress them (laughs) and now I just I'm like no, that's like my sister or my family member, you know, like <laughs> So my next thing was and we I added this in actually after we had our meeting, but uh so during the beginning um of the Quidditch match, uh Oliver Wood is having this moment where he's like doing his like rallying of the troops and he's like about to do this like speech and he goes, Okay, men and Angelina Johnson says and women and I just wanted to give her a shout out because it's so easy when you're in a field or an activity that is dominated by people who are not the same as you to get overlooked and to be erased and for those people to just kind of ignore your existence. And she's like, no, fuck you. Notice me. I'm here and I exist and you have to acknowledge it. Fuck yeah. You go, Angelina Johnson. You go. <laughs> you go, Glenn Coco. 
I I have to give Rowling, you know, credit for that because she wrote that in for a a, a reason. So um, I put this in here um, mostly because in the past we were talking about J.K. Rowling sort of writing women by their negative characteristics first, and this is one of the first times where we see a woman described as pretty, and it is Harry's mom in the Mirror of Erised, and. I don't know, like, part of it, it's, like, it's nice to see that there's, like, a pretty woman, like, and she's described by a positive physical quality because it doesn't exist up until now. But then it's also kind of weird, like, Lily's character is, like, this mother's love and this pretty woman who doesn't really have a character other than she loves her son and her husband. And I don't know, it just kind of bothers me still, even though we finally see this like positive woman physical characteristics. Yeah. I got, I got some Oedipus vibes from it a little bit just because he doesn't know his mother. And then he sees this beautiful woman and he's like, that's my mom. That's my mom. Like what if his mom, what if he didn't see his mom as attractive? What would he, would he think any less? Like, why does it, matter and i guess maybe she was trying to say that everyone thinks their mom is beautiful which might be the case i don't know but i mean uh okay there's also the fact that like he ends up with Ginny, who to me is a very similar character when i make mood boards that are like lily potter versus Ginny weasley there is no difference. They are the same mood board. Like I literally could label it as either one. Uh, <laughs> Harry's got some serious mommy issues. Like I think that was definitely intentional. That that had to be. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mommy issues. That's it. Um, and then, so the last thing that I wanted to point out was um, Hermione is trying to remind Ron how to do a spell, um, and he says. I know, don't be a nag. And I felt like physically in pain when I read that. I I can't describe to you the amount of times that I've felt like I am, quote, nagging someone for telling them something that they genuinely are forgetting or need to know. I actually think this might be one of the instances that JK put intentionally to kind of highlight how women are often treated. Because I feel like the term nag in itself, I think as a woman, you can't write that and not know what it means to hear that. I think, I, I think that was an intentional act to, to kind of remind you of how Hermione is viewed by these boys. I totally agree with that. I still felt very in pain by it, but I, I completely agree because... Yeah, as as a woman, it would be very fucking hard to write those words and to not be, like, specific about it. Like, you know how you feel when someone says that to you. In Expecto Patronum, we talk about the things that make us happy. So we are moving into Expecto Patronum. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is um, Harry goes down to ask Snape back for the quidditch book back and he goes to find snape in the staff room and i love the idea of there being a staff room at hogwarts and i just imagine like i don't know like flitwick sitting there talking about the students (laughs) 
<laughs> like, like later on when Lockhart is a character, just like he's chilling in the room and they all hate him. Like, I don't know. I just love this, in, like this vision of a staff room at Hogwarts. Yeah. I, I, I love the imagery of it too. Um, I imagine a foosball table <laughs> and I imagine like, of course, like there's like coffee and there's probably like, I mean, no, there wouldn't be a computer. Yeah, no. <laughs> this is so confusing. Do wizards have computers? <laughs> because even in the 90s, there were computers. So do wizards have computers? I want to know. Why on earth would a wizard not want a cell phone? I guess they can send messages with owls and shit. But like, no form of magical communication seems as quick as calling someone on a phone. So I just feel like you would want a cell phone. And I mean, you have to save your spell slots. <laughs> this isn't Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Yes, it is. Everything is Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> My life has melded with Dungeons and Dragons. Nothing is real. Do I have to talk about Snape again? <laughs> no, you know what? I'm going to opt out of talking about Snape again. Okay. Um, so the next thing that I kind of... These points all kind of melded together. So I really loved seeing... Um, I guess, so it's Christmas and Harry is getting presents for the first time. And I just thought it was really kind of sad but also kind of endearing like how surprised he is to get presents and I it's just you realize how much he's learning what it is to be loved by people and to have friends and family who love him and then I just really want a Weasley jumper personally yeah I want one maybe we were gonna ask this in the final section but I think it's probably pertinent to say now what colors would your Weasley jumper be well, my soul color is maroon, so it would be maroon because I have a lot of maroon clothing and I just... Yeah. See, I love that because Ron complains that everything he gets is maroon. Fuck you, Maroon. Yeah. Fuck you, Maroon. Fuck you, Maroon. Maroon. Mine would be like, like a dark forest green and then the lettering would be probably probably yellow. I love yellow. It makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, I I just really love the the Weasley jumpers because, and I, I love that Mrs. Weasley made a one for Harry because I feel like it's this really really simple way that makes Harry a part of something, and I feel like it was very intentional on Mrs. Weasley's part. Um, but it's just it makes him a part of the family. So Harry sees his family in the mirror, <laughs> and. Uh, it's just, it's a happy time for me. It made me happy because he sees them and he finally kind of gets a sense of where he comes from and that they love him. And all, even though that's like what he wants to see, he still, he, get, he gets that. And I don't think there's any other way for him to get that. And I think it's really nice. And I know Polly didn't feel exactly <laughs> the same way about it. <laughs> I felt so sad when I was reading this. My heart broke for him because, I don't know, he's just, like, getting closer and closer to this mirror. And he's... I, I guess it makes sense that we both had different, I guess, perspectives on it because Harry f is described as feeling both sadness and joy from it. So it's clearly a mixed moment. Yeah. I, I can see why it would be sad because it does kind 
kind of emphasize what he's missing out on and what he doesn't have. But what I got from it most was anyone, like a muggle who's not magical, who loses their family, doesn't have that opportunity. And that he's really lucky in the situation to have that. And that that's what makes it like so special and happy for me to read is, wow, that's amazing that that you can have that experience. And that he's doing it. It's not the mirror, really. Like, I mean, it's part the mirror, but it's his. It's his wishes and how pure that is, and that how he's getting exactly what he wants. And it's just, oh, it just like even just talking about it right now makes me really warm. And I swear it's not just the alcohol. <laughs> okay, so going off of that really nice feeling <laughs> of uh, Harry seeing his family, something else that made me so happy was that his first thought when he looked in the mirror was that the room was filled with invisible people, which makes so much sense because this is his first time being invisible. So he looks in the mirror and he's like, this is a weird mirror. There are people all around me. They must be invisible too. But like how terrifying is that thought that shit, this room is filled with invisible people. And, like, at least for a second, he believed that and how awful that is. And for some reason, that awful notion just makes me so happy because he's a kid. He's a kid, and he thinks these absurd things, but also, me as an adult would definitely think that. So what's probably not being picked up by the microphone is that I'm, like, giggling, like, (laughs) a lot. Um, Yeah, I guess you would be questioning all the time if there were invisible people around if you were 11 and just realized that there was invisibility. <laughs> and I think it's very funny for him to, like, see people who, like, kind of look like him, that, like, they could be related to him, and he's, like, just batting around the room, like, are you here? Like, <laughs> like what must he have thought in that moment? He must have thought that constantly he's surrounded by invisible people, which I think anyone would think. We move on to Christmas, and we're at Christmas dinner. I don't know why I'm, like, so giggly right now, but anyways. Booze? Yeah, it's the booze. Um, So we're at Christmas dinner, and Hagrid is lit AF, as the kids would say, and he kisses McGonagall on the cheek, and she blushes, and I think this is so funny and cute. And I just, constantly as I read these books, I am just reminded more and more that McGonagall is not this serious, stern woman that she's made out to be all of the time she actually has this like whole other personality and humor to her the last thing i wanted to talk about in expecto patronum was uh so there's this moment where neville stands up to draco and he says i'm worth 12 of you malfoy and my like the grinch's heart my heart grew three sizes (laughs) harry says this to neville and then neville um, uses those words that Harry, like, bolstered him with to be like, no, fuck you, Draco. And I was just like, this is so cute. I'm so cute. Harry gave him confidence. Study up, because we are going to quiz you in our next segment called the Ordinary Wizarding Levels. Okay, so we're going into Ordinary Wizarding Levels. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That was good. (laughs) So my first question is... Why do you think Hermione lies about the reason she's in the bathroom? Why is she so weird about it? 
And why does she not just say she's peeing? Like, what do you think is the reasoning? I think she just panics. I think, I think I said this earlier, where sometimes you just lie and you don't know why you lied. You just lie. It's just, in, it's, it's just a reaction because you feel like the truth isn't good enough. I think that's just what it is. And I think if she told the truth, it would have been fine. But I think in that moment, she felt like the truth wasn't good enough and she had to come up with something better. And it wasn't necessarily better, which is in reality what happens a lot of time when you lie. Like when you leave your computer on the bus and you're just awkward making up lies about your education. (laughs) What is Snape doing when he gets bit by Fluffy? Yeah, so we talked about this a bit in our um, Skype meeting, and I cannot remember. I don't. I don't remember. It's the same thing with like Quirrell in the woods. Like, what is Snape's motive and intent for all of that? I don't. I don't. Maybe I'm just forgetting key plot points. I mean, I think it's overall Snape is suspicious about Quirrell. It's it's so convoluted, and I mean, maybe we. It's just we don't think like these kind of people. That we don't understand, but it's just, yeah, it doesn't make much sense. The only thing that makes sense to me is why we were so confused about whether Snape is good or bad for the entire series. And why I'm still confused, because... Uh, moving on, so this is a pretty like big question. Uh, what, what would you see in the Mirror of Erised? And so we've sort of decided to clarify this between like two categories of like what would you see now and what would you have seen when you were a kid? So I think when I was a kid, I was going to say that I would have wanted, I would have seen myself like fitting in and having like a good close group of friends. But then I second guessed it because I've always felt like I really, no, no, I think I still would. I think that that's what I would see. But they would be friends who like really cared for me for who I was because I've always been a little bit, I've always felt like a little bit of an outcast when I was a kid and I, I never felt embarrassed by the, who I was. Um, but I just wished that I could have people around me who appreciated who I was. So I think that's what I would have felt when I was a kid. And like now as an adult, like I feel appreciated by my friends for who I am. Um, so it's hard because the mirror is a visual thing. So it's hard to imagine like what I would see as opposed to like, this is sort of my deepest thing that I feel (laughs) like. So I think for me... Um, so I, like for our listeners who don't know me, I was diagnosed about five years ago with bipolar type two, and I've really struggled with my mental health throughout like most of my life. And I've been on medication for, since I was diagnosed and I'm a lot more stable now, but it's something I will always struggle with. And I think that one of my deepest desires in like my lowest moments is I always like come back to this thought where I'm like, why was I born this way? Why do I have a brain that thinks like this? Why can't I just be normal? That's not something you would see in a mirror. But if there was a visual depiction of it, I think that would be my like deepest desires to just not have this lifelong struggle of being stable. Um, because it's something I will struggle with forever. I, I'm kind of on the same wavelength as you where I know what I would, like what my most desperate desire as Dumbledore put it, is, but I don't know how I would see it because I know, like, now, my most desperate desire is similar to yours in stability, but it's also independence. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know what that looks like. Like, I, I don't know what that would look like in my life. I don't know what it would look like in the mirror. It could look so many different ways. And when I think about what I would see as a child, I mean, if I'm trying to pinpoint a certain time, I'm going to go to 11 years old because that's where these kids are. I probably would have wanted to, most desperate desire would probably be just to be seen in some good good light. Maybe I was on a ba- I was on the baseball team, so maybe like as the best player on the team. So I was extremely competitive. I still kind of am, but like I was like I I wanted to be the best. So maybe that, or maybe because I wanted to be like like ex- I wanted to excel in academia. Maybe I would have saw myself like rounded as head boy. Like, it, I think it would probably be more in that direction. But now as an adult, I, I don't know what I would see. I just know what it would be about. Maybe that's why Dumbledore struggled so much to answer, like, what he sees in front of the mirror. Because I think as you get older, your desires are not as, I don't know, I guess when you're younger, they're just very, like, oh, I would have friends. Like, <laughs> you know, concrete. you know, it's pretty concrete. You can visually see that. Um be a lot more complicated i feel as you get older so i would like to know what would you do with a cloak of invisibility if you were given it at 11 years old at hogwarts like at 11 or as a teenager which like like well i want to know like it all like what would you do then what would you do now what would you do in between okay so at 11 i probably honestly would not have done much because i was a very quiet child I, I was weird but I was quiet <laughs> I sound like I'm like this like weird kid but anyways um I wouldn't have done that much with at 11 me as a teenager on the other hand I would have gotten some, some shit man like <laughs> like I wouldn't have been like the kid who was like making out with people in the closet like in the broom closets um that's not really my style at that age late, like in my 20s <laughs> uh, but when I was a teenager I was a very like late bloomer I hate that term. I hate the idea of young girls blooming. But, um, <laughs> you know, I. my whole point is that as a teenager, I did not really care about relationship. I, I really think I probably would have been, like, mischievous. What about you? So at 11, I would probably just use it just to sneak around and just to, like, see what's up around Hogwarts. As a teenager, it would have came... Oh, it would have been so useful as a teenager to sneak around with my girlfriend because <laughs> in high school we had to sneak around. We okay, so like she went to Catholic school, so it all had to be on the down low. So we we had to like go to the cafeteria or the dark room to make out, and like it would have been so useful because clearly two people can fit under it. Um, and now I would probably use it just to not be seen in general, just so people could just not acknowledge me when I didn't want to be acknowledged. That would be great. Yeah, no jokes. I would use it to avoid awkward social situations. I would just be like, okay, bye. The older that I get, the less bullshit I have for people and their like weirdness or like, like there's just things people do sometimes. And I'm like, do you not understand that this is awkward or weird and you're putting me in an awkward situation? And then I would just be like invisibility cloak. Like, (laughs) whereas like now I have to be like assertive and be like, okay, I'm leaving this situation. Bye. (laughs) 
but I'd probably use it to be passive aggressive and be like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think the cloak would be like a great dramatic exit. It's like, um, you know, Bilbo Baggins when he, when he puts the ring on to like leave at the end of his party, like that's what it'd be like. Like, and, and goodbye. (laughs) Yeah. Bye losers. (laughs) (laughs) My question is who sent Harry the cloak? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we talked about this before um, in our meeting. Uh, I always assumed it was Dumbledore. I think you were saying that you thought it might be serious. Everything went to shit in my brain, and I was like, might be serious. <laughs> and so G actually just showed up right now. So I think we need to get G to uh, research this, <laughs> which they're actually doing right now. Uh, but before yeah. G researches, I just want to say... Dumbledore is the logical answer. I mean, McGonagall too, because she sent him the broom. But I feel like if she had the cloak, she would have given that to him Mm. earlier or not given it to him at all because she would know the danger of it and what it could do for him (laughs) in so many ways. Like, it's such a dangerous item for to give to a teenager. It was Dumbledore. Claim your sources. (laughs) HarryPotter.Fandom.com Wiki. That's the one I used earlier. I told you, it's got to be legit. <laughs> there you go. Dumbledore. Although I do agree with you that um, I can understand how you would think it might be serious. I reject this. <laughs> Taylor is going to write a full fan fiction about Sirius Black sending the, uh, <laughs> the invisibility clock. I'll read it. And we'll all read it, yeah. <laughs> Anyways... That is all we have this month. Goodbye. And I love you. And you're doing great. And um, I believe in you and, and all your pursuits. As long as they're for good and not for evil. Well, that's all we have for you this time. Thanks to everyone for listening. And be sure to follow us on Tumblr at cauldroncakesandwine.tumblr.com. And on Instagram at Cauldron Cakes and Wine. Also follow us on Twitter at CC and Wine. Our Twitter game is weak, but we promise if you tweet us, we will tweet back. And of course, be sure to like, subscribe, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Pew! <laughs> Pew, we love you.